Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Scott. Scott is the principal of uh, Metal Art Christian School. If you ever want to talk to him about Christian education and uh, uh, from uh, kindergarten up through uh, grade nine. And uh, we're glad for your role in that capacity, Scott. Well, good morning. Um, welcome to TCC and to a new Sunday here. Uh, I just want to bring you a bit of an update uh, from Southwest Community Church you kind of notice I escape after, uh, after the sermon is over and I go over to Southwest. Uh, uh, the the uh, congregation is doing well. It's growing. There are probably about 130 to 140 people there on a Sunday morning. Uh, we're just launching seven uh, life groups, and uh, all of those life groups are basically full. So we're excited about that. We have about 50 children in our children's ministry, and... Uh, uh, just Sunday by Sunday, we're seeing new people uh, filter into the church. So I just wanted to say thank you for your prayers. Uh, that means so much. Continue to pray for us as we get rooted in this, uh, in this new community. Uh, it, it's exciting what God is doing. Well, we're in a series of messages uh, called Core Strength. And we're not only trying to give our spiritual abs a little workout, but we're also working on the physical and when you think of the discipline that it takes, man, isn't it hard to stay on task day after day after day uh, to work on those abs, those core muscles? Uh, it calls to mind that we need to be equally uh, focused and give attention to that which will help us grow in our, our spiritual journey. Oh, and I learned a new word uh, this week uh, about, um, because some of you out there are physical fit gurus, and, uh, and you pop things into my, my mind every once in a while. It's called anchor, that the core is the place where we anchor the whole body. Well, that's good. That's a good word. We are anchored here in the core. And uh, likewise, how important to be anchored in our journey with God by coming to know him and love him and walk with him, and then, of course, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, just checking in, uh, how did it go this past week? Yeah, I like that guy. Oh, it hurts. Uh, but making progress, I hope. Every, every day I uh, try to add one more sit-up or one more plank. And I'm grateful for the accountability. Otherwise, I think I would say about this point, that's enough of that. Let's just move on with life. But because I know you're doing it too, you are, aren't you? Uh, because you're doing it too, I have to press on. And that's the power of accountability. 
So if you're real new here in the last week or so, we're having a little fun thing that we're working on our abs, our core, uh, whatever exercises we can do, uh, taking it uh, slow, careful that you don't increase. Uh, I'll, I'll just do another 20 today because if you increase 20 every day, you'll discover at the end of the 60th day that you might look like this little guy. Just tired. That's how I actually feel. There's a lot of people in our churches, uh, both TCC and Southwest, who are actually doing this, who are working on their abs these days. And even the kids are working on their abs. See what happens when you work on your abs. Look at this little guy. Look at, look at that six-pack. Isn't that awesome? See what can happen? Don't take it too seriously. <laughs> That's the power of Photoshop. But awesome that you are working uh, on your abs. All right. I can't really say that I've heard the term fake news before the last couple of years. I, I, we never quite gave it that label. We might have uh, talked about bias reporting, but fake news is something again. Fake news is a kind of journalism that deliberately sets forth misinformation for the purpose of making some gain financially or maybe politically. It's often very sensational. It's, uh, it's often very exaggerated. And most times, it's just not true. I expect that Jesus had to contend with a great deal of fake news about himself during his rich ministry years on this planet. There were stories floating all over the place about who he was and how he could do what he could do. And after all, uh, wasn't he just the son of Mary and Joseph? And there was lots of misinformation out there about him. And sometimes Jesus himself would question his followers about how the world perceived him. Who do people say I am? And, and then he would get different responses. And when it looked like he was gaining too much popularity, the religious leaders felt the need to trip him up. They want, wanted to create some negative press, if you will. Uh, and, uh, and if you didn't want to follow him, they, wanted to, they just wanted to turn as many people away as possible. And if they could get him to buy into answering some tricky questions, then they would try to make him look bad, just like fake news for their own political advantage. So look at these words from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's a trick question. This guy is an expert in the law, Ph.D. Knows this stuff forwards and backwards. He's not looking for an honest answer. He's out to trip Jesus up. Look at the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, one doesn't work to gain an inheritance. An estate already belongs to the inheritor. What do you do to gain an inheritance? How do you work at that? Well, you don't. You don't work at getting an inheritance. But that was the thinking of the first century Jews. They believed that they automatically inherited the kingdom of God 
as children of Abraham who had received the unconditional covenant of God. It was just theirs. They inherited it. So really this lawyer was uh, throwing down the gauntlet, challenging Jesus to do a theological duel with him. And Jesus did what an insightful teacher always does. He turned the question back to the lawyer. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Maybe that caught him off guard a bit, and he answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, Jesus said, you have the answer. You got it. You said it. Now get after it. And like any good attorney at this point, he started to look for loopholes. He knew that he could not have kept the law perfectly. He hadn't, nor could he. So he played the distraction card. It says the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, let's go down that road. And so you have the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, if you're following in the CFL these days, you will know that the Hamilton Tiger Cats are having a very tough year. They hadn't won a game for so long. And I was feeling really bad for them, uh, pulling for them that they would beat somebody. And then a few weeks ago, they won a game against Toronto. Oh, that got them excited. Then they they won against Ottawa. And uh, Friday night, they won against BC. So I was, I've been so pulling for Hamilton, these underdogs, because it must be awful not to win even one game, discouraging for everybody. But they've won three games. They're on their own now. I'm not pulling for them anymore. But it reminds me that in 1959, Vince Lombardi inherited the Green Bay Packers at the lowest point of their history as a professional football team. After losing 10 of their 12 games the previous season, it seemed that the team had nowhere to go but up. But after losing five straight games in the new season, Lombardi began to wonder. He gathered the team together. He announced that they were going back to basics. He then picked up a ball and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. A little humiliating. Of course, you ever you have somebody in the back that always likes to cut up, and one of the guys from the back of the squad said, oh, Coach, could you slow down a little bit? You're going too fast for us. And Lombardi laughed, but he quickly refocused the team. Though surrounded by years of football experience, the time had come to wipe the slate clean and to start fresh from scratch. By the time Jesus stepped onto the scene in Israel, the most visible examples of Judaism had reduced godliness to a list of rules and rituals, 613 to be exact. Rules so complicated that no one could maintain it. I mean, they got absorbed with all the rules and they forgot the basics. Gentlemen, this is a football. And so what an opportunity for Jesus to say to the whole nation, these are the basics. This is what we have to get back to. If you want to get back to what's really, really important, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, 
and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of like two hinges on a door. These two commandments are challenges for us. How do we love the Lord? How do we open our life to God? How do you open your life to your neighbors? To open one's life to God means to open our hearts to Him, our minds to Him, our whole self to Him, to see what God is doing. And to see what God's doing in our neighbor, whether the neighbor be friend or foe. We have to ask the question for ourselves, do I love God? Do I love my neighbor? Loving God. But how? How do you get a handle on that? How do I love God? Where do I start? And it seems to me that we all start at the very same place. We all start with the realization that we've got a heart problem. That we have a Genesis 3 problem. That the sin of our forefathers has polluted our hearts as well. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the diagnosis of the heart is that it's evil. That it thinks thoughts other than what God would have it think. It decides to do things other than what God would decide it should do. Not a simple thing to love God. Because by nature, this heart is a rebel. And men and women no more search for God than a thief search, searches for a policeman. How does this heart love God? I mean, is this the heart that's going to make a difference in our world today? Is this the heart that's going to care for my neighbor? Is this the heart that will go to the mission field to advance the kingdom of God? I mean, is this the heart that will get involved in the lives of people who have a drug habit that's killing them? Is this the heart that will help people in recovery after they've lost everything in Irma or Harvey? Oh, and by the way, has the church ever stepped up in the aftermath of the hurricanes? FEMA, which is the government relief agency in the USA, is just overwhelmed with the way the church has responded. And FEMA has said, we have, we have no way, no capacity at all to meet the needs that are so great at this time in our history. But we are grateful for the church that has stepped in to help solve and work with the solution to the crisis. But nevertheless, this heart needs help uh, before it can love God and before it can uh, love others. So first of all, how do, we, how do we go about that? First of all, we need a heart transplant. We need a heart transplant. Wouldn't it be awesome just to have a heart that would naturally love God and naturally love my neighbor? But I'll tell you, this old heart doesn't do it. This old heart needs a transplant. And it's interesting how the Bible talks about that. And I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. And I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. Yes, Lord, I would love to have a new heart. A new heart. 
tender, responsive. And take away the stony, stubborn heart. It's a transplant. That's what we need. But where do you get the new heart? Who's the heart donor? Who would ever give their heart to another person? God would. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, looked at this sinful world. And he knew the solution to this sinful world could only be a transplant uh, that would make a difference for the human race. And Jesus said, take my heart, take my heart. And we know this difficult story. We sang about it this morning. But it's a, a difficult story and a wonderful story. And in the words of Jill Briscoe, on an operating table in the shape of a cross, God, the great physician, lifted out the heart and nature of Jesus Christ and offered them to the world. I love that. On an operating table in the shape of a cross, God, the great physician, lifted out the heart and nature of Jesus Christ and offered them to the world. Why did he do that? Why did he die on a cross? He wanted to remove our stony, stubborn hearts and give us tender, sensitive hearts. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, a loving heart. He wanted to forgive us. He wanted to give us a brand new start. And his work in our hearts allows us to know him and to hear him. And when you receive Christ's heart, you become a different person. You have his heart in you. And it changes your life. It's like a transplant. I remember that operation in my life as a child. I was young, but it was real. And although I couldn't explain what was happening, I knew something was happening. I knew that there was a transformation taking place. And Jesus transplanted his heart into mine. The Spirit of God came into my life. It wasn't complicated, I know, but it was real. It wasn't... Uh, something that I had to strive for. I just said, Lord, would you? Uh, and I, I just simply prayed to ask the Lord to forgive my sin, to cleanse my heart, to come into my life, and he did exactly that. An operation took place, and God put his spirit into my life. And I began to sense that my life is now different, that Christ is now within me, and he transformed my heart by the indwelling of the Spirit. And he's still working on my heart. He is still transforming my life. How do I love God? It starts with a new heart. A heart that's transformed by the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And friend, as, as you're on a journey, I want you to see that the way to begin loving God is to ask him to change your heart. Only he can do that to ask him to come into your, your life, to give you a brand new start by putting his heart within you. Have you had a heart transplant? Is that new heart, that heart that God gives now in your heart, is the Holy Spirit controlling your life? The only way I'm able to love God is that the love of God himself is shed abroad in my heart through the Holy Spirit. Second, we need a new understanding of the nature of God. 
This week, I read the words of a pastor who said, the Lord woke me up at 3.30 in the morning with the words, I have raised you up to change people's opinion of me. That will change their lives, and then they will change the world. I've raised you up to change people's opinion of me. That will change their lives, they will change the world. If people knew how good God is, they would love him and live for him. And that would greatly impact our world. Our understanding is of the nature of God is influential in changing people's opinions of God. I mean, we formulate all kinds of opinions about who God is and what he's like. Remember one of our exams in seminary, I forget whether it was a midterm or it was a final, the prof came in, handed out some paper to all of us and students, went to the board, wrote a question. The question was simply, what's God like? Said goodbye, said he'd come by, back in a couple of hours, pick up the papers, and that we could write to our heart's content for two hours, what's God like? And we find ourselves trying to do all the things that we think we should do to win the favor of God because we position him as a God who needs all of our things to be done so that we can love him and he can love us. One of the biggest problems is religion's misuse of the law. It's done tremendous damage to God's image. The law, John says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law wasn't inaccurate, but it was incomplete. And when it's not properly applied, it gives a strong, a wrong representation of God. Many believe that God gave the law to show us what we have to do to obtain a relationship with him. But the law was never intended to bring us into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. It was supposed to show us our sin and our need for God. For example, in English, we have only one word for love, which is a bit unfortunate when you think of it, because we, we use the word love for everything. We use the word love, I love my new hairbrush, I love my new toothbrush. And then we use it, I love God. Same word. But the Greeks had a number of words to describe love. Storge could mean the love between a parent and a child. Eros is a word of passion or sexual attraction or romantic love. Phileo is a relationship between good friends, someone with whom you share the ups and downs of life. And then there's that word agape that we've all heard. They had this word that agape that they didn't use very often because it was so different from the others. It wasn't centered in the relationship to the other person or in the attractiveness of the other person, but was more focused on the person who was doing the loving. And the Greeks used the word agape in the context of doing something that is for the benefit of another person. All the different words of love are types of love, and they're all from God. We might misunderstand them, we might abuse them, but God gave us all of those kinds of love to enjoy, 
the love of friends, the love of family and parents and romantic love. But agape love is unique because it's not based on any merit or attraction or anything like that. It's rooted in the person who is doing the loving. Oh, and it's a wonderful thing to get agape love. I mean, everyone wants it. Some just want to be touched. Some just want to be hugged or held. Some just want to have the sense that we're really important to someone. And that we, we want it to matter whether we come in late at night or we don't come home at all. But we still want to be loved by our parent. We want to have someone who will stand up for us and believe in us. And the problem we constantly face is whether we're desirable. Will someone just love us for who we are? We're used to a conditional kind of love. I will love you if you do this. If we look good, we may be attractive to someone and they'll respond to us. If we behave as we're supposed to behave, then maybe we'll have friends who will hang out with us. If we meet our parents' expectations, maybe they will approve of us and love us. But wouldn't it be great just to be loved for myself? I don't have to meet a certain standard in looking good. I don't have to have the latest style to be loved. I don't have to say all the right things. I don't have to be in the right places. I don't have to have status or power or money to be loved. Wouldn't it be awesome just to be loved for being me? And what if somebody knew everything about me, everything I know about myself, and yet they still love me? Wouldn't that be remarkable? That's agape love. And that's what God is like. And that's the nature of God. It's the kind of love that God has for us. The scripture says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that ferry that uh, capsized in Seoul, Korea? A couple years ago, killing hundreds of people. And you remember that most of the passengers on that ferry were high school students who uh, ultimately drowned while waiting for the instructions from their leader to abandon ship. And remember the captain had fled the sinking ship, made sure that he was on dry ground, prompting a whole chorus of condemnation from the loved ones of the lost. And then the teacher who had organized this trip took his own life, feeling that he had no right to be alive while most of his students perished. And even the prime minister of South Korea offered to resign because of the tragedy. Very rarely will anyone die for someone else. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. C.S. Lewis described his conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy. Listen to these words. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, 
the steady, unrelenting approach of him of whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? Then he writes, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. His compassion is a liberation. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Compassion is our liberation. Oh, we need a new understanding of the nature of God, who he really is. This amazing love of God, the nature of who God really is. A God of love, agape love, an outrageous love. Oh, we need a heart transplant. We need a new understanding of the nature of God. A God who is agape, agape love. Perhaps this clip says it best. Just look at the screens. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Excuse me, son. Yeah? What have you got there? Got, got some birds, some wild birds. Really? Yeah. Where'd you get them? I'm in the field over there. There's a field with wild birds. Huh. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind my asking, what are you going to do with them? I want to play games with them. Games? Yeah, I can play games with wild birds, yeah. What kind of games? Um, sometimes I like to poke a stick in there, you know, and they'll be like going, gah, 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 like that, you know? And then sometimes I like to rattle up the cage, and they think it's an earthquake, and they love that. What happens to them after you're done playing games with them? Mm, usually I feed them my cat. You know, my cat likes wild birds. i tell you what. I am fond of wild birds. You are? Yeah. Let me buy them from you. You want to buy my wild birds? Yeah. Well, they're no good for nothing. They can't do no tricks or nothing. And when you open this gate, they're just going to fly away. How much? You're serious? I'm very serious. Five dollars. All right. Ten dollars. Hmm. Okay. Twenty dollars. They're wild birds. They're exotic birds. You found them in a field. An exotic field. All right, that's all I got. See you looking at the cage. Yeah. When you got in there. You know what's in there. Mankind. Found them in the garden. The funny thing is, they put themselves in that cage. I had nothing to do with it. So what's your plans with them? I'm going to play games with them. Games? What kind of games? All kinds of games. I'm going to put games into their life that they think is going to bring them so much pleasure. Then I'm going to turn the world upside down. 
I'm gonna make right seem wrong and wrong seem right. And then? He'll be damned for all eternity. My father and I, we're very fond of mankind. I know. We want them to have access to us. So, I'm going to pay for their freedom. You want these humans? Yeah. You know they promised you everything before. They're going to turn their backs on you. Some will, and some won't. You're serious. Oh, I'm very serious. It'll cost you your tears. I know. Your blood. Yeah. It'll cost you your life. I know. You're willing to give your life. I'm willing to give what it takes. This reminds us about what Jesus did for us on the cross. He picked up that wooden cross and carried it to Mount Calvary because he loved you and me. Willing to do what it takes. He was. He did. Let's stand together. How do you respond to that love? I want to just say this morning, just say thank you. Just say thank you for the love wherever you're at in your journey. He wants you to have his heart, and he gives us a new heart. So this morning, just say thank you, Lord. Come into my heart. Let's pray together. Wherever you're at in your journey, whether you've never really said yes to Christ or whether you've lived for him for years. Just identify with this prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for paying the ultimate sacrifice for my sin. For whatever it takes and that you were willing to do that. Lord, I invite you to come into my life. May I have your heart. May I have your new beginning in my heart. And Lord, thank you for the journey of being with you now and forever. We want to say to you again today, your love is amazing. We receive your love. Lord, come into our hearts and fill us with your love. May we make a difference in this world as we're completely sold out to you. You're our Lord, and you're our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.